It's time for security now. Steve Gibson has the latest. Yes, another Java patch. And uh, more information about LavaBit. More information about the NSA, too. What is a ferret cannon? It's coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Bandwidth for security now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 426, recorded October 16th, 2013. Squirrel anti-phishing and revocation. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, visit ProXPN.com slash twit. And use the code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy and security online. Somebody in the chat room before we began the show today, Steve Gidson, explainer-in-chief, said we should call it Insecurity Now since it really talks mostly about (laughs) insecure. But not today. Today we're going to talk about uh, better security. Well, yeah. um, Actually, this is one of those episodes where... So much happened in the last week in security news that I mean, I, we just there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff to talk about, and and in the past when we've done that, we've just said okay, we're not going to have any major topic because too much happened. Yet there was also some news over in Squirrel Land, <laughs> uh, the SQRL, the Secure QR Code Login System, uh, where we made some some advances in in anti-phishing protection, which is something that people have been concerned about, and also the issue of revocation, that is revoking your credentials on a site, because those are both things that are, for example, you because of the simplicity of the system, these things are more difficult. For example, when you have a public key infrastructure, you can revoke a certificate. In fact, one of our stories today is how GoDaddy revoked LavaBits certificate once the FBI had it. So thanks to the involvement of a third party, you can certainly achieve revocation. But how do you do that in a two-party system? And of course, one of the big huge benefits of Squirrel is it is deliberately two-party. It is trust no one else. Would that be T N O E? Anyway, we don't, <laughs> we don't add an E. Tuno, yeah, just T N, just T N O. But anyway, a huge, a ton of really interesting news for the week, uh, and then I want to talk about some, basically, some advances in the the in the way Squirrel operates. Which and and the the my God, Leo, it, we're just seeing an explosion of interest. Huge number of projects started. There's even a presentation at next week's. HTML5 Developers Conference in Mo- at Moscone Center in San Francisco on Squirrel. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Who's no, doing that? It, not you. It's it's no, no, I'm not doing it. No, somebody. And then there's another uh, uh, there. There's a annual identity conference, and it's going to be presented there also. So, wow. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's taken off. Very exciting. 
Well, uh, good. All right. Well, so I guess we'll start with uh, security news. And it wouldn't be security news if uh, there weren't a Java update. <laughs> oh, and baby, do we have one today. This is, we, you want to be at Java 7 update 45. That's the newest one. 51 security vulnerabilities, all but one of which are remotely exploitable without any authentication. Oh, that's not good. So so 50 out of 51 are, if the bad guys know this, you're hosed, basically. Wow. So uh, it's just phenomenal. And But the, the problem is it is, it is a full-feature, big language that should have never been put online. It's not a problem, as we've said often. If you have it on your, if you have it on your desktop, it's it's when uh, it's when Sun and then of course Oracle continuing this when they decided that that it would be a good idea to make this a browser plugin. Oh, look, just think what we can do if you can download Java applets. You can you can have full Java features on your browser. Well. You know, listeners to this podcast know that's just not going to turn out well. I mean, Flash is sort of a is a subset of that. JavaScript is a subset of even Flash, and all of them have problems. It's just it is a bad idea to allow a website to run code on your computer. That's never going to turn out well. So, I mean, it, it's because it's so valuable. I mean, it's you know, no one's going to argue that it's really makes the web come alive. I mean, it's it's Google's entire world is based on now running apps from them on our computer. That's how, you know, Google Docs works. And all of, you know, many of these cloud-based systems are working that way. So we're not going to succeed in, in absolutely saying no. But it's the reason, for example, that I wouldn't consider operating without NoScript in Firefox is that my default is no, just as it is for every firewall now in existence. Firewalls used to be allow it in unless we know we want to block something. Now all firewalls are block it unless we know we want to permit something. And that's what NoScript does. And when you configure it properly, it's not a problem. Some sites don't work until you say, okay, yeah, you, well, I'll allow you to work this time. And then they come alive. Of course, healthcare.gov never works. Whether yeah. you en enable it or not, it's Leah, did you it's hear? In WordPress. It's, it's it's sixty some JavaScript files. Yeah. Talk about a JavaScript nightmare! I don't even think you could permit it to work in NoScript. NoScript would probably crash if you tried to in go in and individually enable all the JavaScript that the healthcare.gov yeah. website needed in order to function. Now, I really want to emphasize, and I know our audience knows this, Java is not JavaScript. They're two different things which are uh, inappropriately uh, similarly named. You know, yes, I was really peeved just before I uh, left. I uh, uh, Actually, I guess it was last week when I got back. I needed to contact uh, Comcast for moving, and so I wanted to move. And the only way you can uh, move with Comcast is is using their Java-based chat client. Wow. So I had to, uh, you know, normally I don't have Java installed on No machines, kidding. So I had to so install like Java. So all other methods of contact are now, sorry, this well, is... Well, they don't, you know, I guess you could call them, but they really don't want you to. The, and, right. And, they, and the, you can't do it just on the web. You have to go through this person. So I was just looking and I, you reminded me, oh, God, I got to turn off because I had to allow <laughs> it. I now have to unallow it again. So that yep. uh, I'm not 
It's just terrible. Terrible. Yeah. So, so you know, I will reiterate that, first of all, it, it, you will, <sighs> by, by, by this point, you will know if you are a person who needs Java. I, whenever we talk about it, I get tweets from the Scandinavian countries that say, well, all the banks over here require right. us to have Java. The good news is I've had some, some updated tweets that say, oh, they're moving away from that. It's like, okay, good. So, you know, this is something we just need to kill because, you know, here we are at Java 7 Update 45. We've talked about how Java 6 no longer has updates yet. Okay, here's 51 security vulnerabilities that also exist in Java 6 that will never be patched. Wow. So so this is what's happening is the bad guys are are seeing the mistakes which are which are bubbling up and being and being fixed in the current version when when they look at the patch they figure out what got changed that tells them what was fixed then they go looking deliberately looking it gives them a pointer to the problem in prior versions which are not being fixed of course this is the same problem we expect to be seeing when xp goes out of service in 173 days mm-hmm. i have my xp counter on the on my on my windows 7 machine um so so it, the only strategy first of all you 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 probably by now know you need it if you do just just as you had the experience leo of needing to use it in order for you know, for a specific purpose for a window of time and then saying no the best solution because we've all got browser choices now is to remove it from your your go-to browser of choice and that is remove the java plugin so that java won't run on that browser and you can verify doing that. I ha- actually have a Java applet on GRC, that big number calculator, w- w- which you can access at grc.com. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. completely benign, but it's a nice way of verifying, oh, good, it doesn't work because you don't want it to work unless you absolutely know you do. And then only allow Java to run in like your third choice browser, you know, your browser of last resort. If you've got no other choice, that's the browser where you want Java to be. That way you're not you're not using it by mistake and it doesn't have an opportunity because the point is normally the browser will request a Java applet by default. So all you have to do is touch a website which is either malicious or has been hacked to install like a malicious ad or a malicious little tag, the browser sees it, goes and grabs that Java code and runs it. That's the default behavior of browsers with Java. So it's ju- you just can't allow that to be. We must not allow it. We must not. So <laughs> put it on, you know, put it on a browser you never use. Which you, you know, and only if you need to talk to Comcast in order to re after oh, you move. So frustrating. Home. Yeah. So frustrating. Yeah. Now, well. speaking of frustrating, there was a really sad piece of news that is an upshot of the NSA revelations, uh, more blowback from what Edward Snowden showed us. Um, and this is a, a news alert posted on the internetgovernance.org site on the 11th of this month. Um, the headline was, The Core Internet Institutions Abandon 
the U.S. government. This, this is not as significant, for example, as if the dollar stopped being the world's reserve currency, but it has that feeling. Mm-hmm. It's, we, you know, we've sort of, we've had ICANN and IANA. I mean, because the U.S. invented the Internet, we developed the technology. We basically, taxpayer money funded the, uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA, back in the in the day to experiment with the concept of packet switching and back in the packet switching podcasts that we did we talked about how what an amazing insight it was that you could achieve the the same thing as dialing up your modem as we used to in the old days to connect to a service you could you could achieve the same thing with with sending little packets of data that just somehow found their way to their destination completely a different concept, which people said, wait, wait a minute, you know, how do I know it's going to get there? Well, you don't. But or how do I know when it's going to get there? Well, you don't. But it's good enough. And it turns out if you layer on top of that uncertainty, you layer protocols that provide for order of arrival and guaranteed arrival and sort of make up for the fact that the underlying architecture is weird, sort of non-deterministic, the whole the, it actually works. And we're all using it. So what's happened, unfortunately, is that the world has said, uh, we don't think we should leave these organizations with the U.S. anymore. So the, just the first two paragraphs of this sad announcement said, um, in Mo- I guess it's Mo- Montevideo, Uruguay Montevideo. this week. Montevideo. Montevideo, thank you. <laughs> Monty video, you can tell. Monty video. <laughs> Monty's video. Montevideo, thank you, Leo. Uruguay. The directors of all the major internet organizations, ICANN, the IETF, we another one that we often talk about. Internet Engineering Task Force. Yep. The Internet Architecture Board, the IAB, uh, the World Wide Web Consortium, that's the W3C uh, that we, we, we often speak of also. The Internet Society, all five of the regional Internet address registries turned their back on the U.S. I know. Thank you for the heavy sigh. <laughs> turned their back on the U.S. government with striking unanimity, the organizations that actually develop and administer Internet standards and resources initiated a break with three decades of U.S. dominance of Internet governance. I'm not sure that's so bad, really. I mean, in general, for the world, I think it's probably good. Why should we dominate? Well, no, but that's just it. There's, I agree with you. This is the right outcome in the same sense that for I the believe wrong reason. <laughs> having it known, yes. Yeah. <laughs> in the same sense that for the reason I believe having it known what the NSA has been doing is right. the right outcome. Right. But it's a black eye or right. maybe it's a bruise. I maybe right. no, we won't go so far as a black eye. Maybe it's a pimple. Uh, <laughs> so a statement released by this group called for, quote, accelerating the globalization of ICANN and IANA functions toward an environment in which all stakeholders, including all governments, participate on an equal footing. That part of the statement constituted an explicit rejection of the U.S. Commerce Department's unilateral oversight of ICANN through the IANA contract. It also indirectly attacks the U.S. unilateral approach to the affirmation of commitments 
that's a capital A and capital C. That's a formal pact between the U.S. and ICANN, which provides for periodic reviews of its activities by the GAC and other members of the ICANN community. And it says in parens, the affirmation was conceived as an agreement between ICANN and the U.S. exclusively. It would not have been difficult to allow other states to sign on as well, but that's not the way it was done. So it's like, uh, okay, well, yeah. Yeah, I think this is not inappropriate, though. It's time, it was, you know, it seemed odd that we, we controlled it as much as we did. I don't blame other yep. nations for not being thrilled about that. Yeah. Uh, so is, but what happens? Is it the UN now? I mean, what is the, is there a body at all? Or is it just, these are all just multi-governmental well, the, or the, NGO, the, non-governmental? Right. The, they're NGOs. They will, I mean, and they've all got committees and teams. And so they'll just basically, you know, cut themselves loose, right. loose and float, float off and no longer recognize, you know, even a modicum of, of, of preferential rights by the U.S., yeah, which I think that was, arguably they used to have. I, and I think agree that's with a you. good idea. I agree with you, but we know why it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It precip- But, you know, there you go. This precipitated a lot of good. Uh, it yes. Re- it revealed a lot, you know? Yes. And this stuff has been floating. It's not like the stuff Snowden revealed has been floating around for a decade. And this just forced everybody to pay attention to it, I think. Uh, I wouldn't say that, actually. No? We got a ton of facts. Right. We we learned a we lot. We suspected Leo. a lot. Yes. Yeah. It was in the air, but it's very different to have right. slide presentations no. yeah. with them boasting and chuckling right. about, you know, what they're doing. That's that's more than what we thought. And on that note, Yahoo on the one year anniversary upcoming, not yet, we still have a few months away. It will be on January eighth. Yahoo has announced that on the one-year anniversary of allowing, that is, supporting HTTPS connections, only four years after Google did, (laughs) this coming January 8th, they will be on by default. Yay! So the checkbox, which is normally off, will be on. Good. Starting January 8th of 2014. So that is that is just, you know, better late than never, yeah. I say. I don't know. I haven't looked at their servers to see whether they're uh, whether they've implemented perfect forward secrecy. We certainly hope they have because it's now time for everyone to, to step up and do that. We've got some interesting news about that, too. Oh, in fact, we're stepping into it because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, GoDaddy revoked LavaBits certificate. Now... That, this news was initially like, yay, you know, I'm, uh, and like, well, well I, I, I tweeted this news and a lot of people came back and said, really, they care or I'm surprised <laughs> or I give them more credit than I. And I would be surprised if, 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 if it was their idea. I think it was probably Ladar he who said, please revoke my certificate. Yeah. Yes. I ha- and who knows what the timing was? The news came out. But, Leo, you ought to just go if, if you want to show this on just go to https colon slash slash lavabit.com and when i checked this morning before reminding myself to to uh that i was going to mention it you can see right there firefox my browser du jour or of choice actually uh says whoops this certificate has been revoked it says and, you might safari says you might be connecting to a website that's pretending to be lavabit which could put your confidential information at risk that's exactly the behavior you want 
That's good. Because, in fact, yes. it might be an NSA front. <laughs> right. Okay. So, anyway. Um, what happens also, if you continue, just out of curiosity? You get, oh, you still get there. But yeah, you get you, but you get his note, Ladar's note saying, I'm out of business. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Now, what we don't know is when he implemented perfect forward secrecy. But the good news is he has it now. So, and again, he may we may well have always had it. I was impressed, though. I, uh, SSLlabs.com has added the ability to check a website's support for perfect forward secrecy. And Ladar Levinson's LavaBit.com servers, which, as you just saw, are still online, um, even though, and in fact, SSL Labs notes that the certificate has been revoked. So it sees that and flags that. But he did float the ephemeral Diffie-Hellman key agreement ciphers up at the top of his server's recommended you know, and supported ciphers list. So, and, and those are the ones that we did a whole podcast not long ago on on this whole, on perfect forward secrecy and how it's because traditional ciphers use the certificate essentially do not have separate keys for authentication and signing but rather they use the same key that is the the server secret key for both authenticating their certificate and for signing um, the session that means that if somebody in the future were to get the key, they could decrypt past conversation. Well, using perfect forward secrecy, ciphers prevents that from happening because then you are negotiating a so-called ephemeral key on the fly that only exists between those endpoints until it expires. But it means that that capturing the the server certificate doesn't give you a, a an advantage in being able to decrypt old traffic. So the good news is LavaBit servers are configured that way. Again, we don't know. It, it matters when they were configured that way because traffic that may have been captured prior to then, if and we now know that the FBI does have the old certificate, so old traffic could be decrypted if perfect forward secrecy had not been in, in, in place all along. And remember, I was never really impressed with all of this because it's email and, and you can't really encrypt email. L l paying customers got their data at rest encrypted. That That is, it would have come in probably unencrypted, even if LavaBit supported connection encryption, both ends have to in order for that to be successful. And many web servers still today don't. So it would have been unencrypted on the wire. Then he was encrypting it while it was stored. And then, of course, if when it was going back out, it would be unencrypted unless you were connecting to his server securely. So, again, you know, it, it takes a lot to to for email to really be encrypted point to point. In fact, it takes, you know, PGP, GPG, you know, GNU, Privacy Garden, you know, all that extra layer stuff. You really want to encrypt it in your browser or in your email client all the way to the destination email client. That's the way to be sure. So he was offering a service, better than not, um, but we don't really know, uh, you know, what it was the FBI got and whether there is 
you know, an archive of, of previously encrypted traffic that the old certificate still allows them to decrypt. But the other news from Ladar is that he has briefly brought LavaBit back up. Hmm. If you go to liberty.lavabit.com, that takes you to a new page. He, and he says, due to concerns about the continued integrity of customers' passwords, hmm. we're offering a... Liberty, uh, oh, did I spell it right? Liberty.lavabit.com. Liberty. Uh, he says, due to concerns about the continued integrity of customers' passwords, we're offering a short window of five days in which users can change their password before we allow anyone to download an archive of their stored emails. The download functionality will be available starting this coming Friday, October 18th. Oh, that's why. It's not up yet. Uh, I, I brought it up. came right up for me. HTTPS colon slash slash. Oh, uh, did, did you do a secure link? HTTPS no, colon just, slash slash. I just typed Liberty, so let me try ah. again. Liberty.lavabit.com. So starting this coming Friday, October 18th, at 7 p.m. Central Time, he says, since the SSL certificates formerly used to protect access to Lavabit have been compromised. Notice you're using a new GoDaddy certificate, HTTPS colon slash slash Liberty.lavabit.com. Since the SSL certificates formerly used to protect access to Lavabit have been compromised, we recommend manually validating and this is unfortunate, but okay, I'll explain why in a second. The serial number and fingerprint your computer received before using this website. So then he shows them. <laughs> yeah, so that well, would be pretty easy to uh, spoof that then is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, that's the problem is yeah. if it's compromised, they're just going to put this – they're going to change the page to show the serial number and fingerprint of their spoofed certificate. Mm. So what you what you need to do is – First of all, the, the, the best thing to do is to ask for details, certificate details, and look at the certificate chain. You will see liberty.lavabit.com at the end of the chain. Then you will see one step up, GoDaddy Secure Certification Authority. And then the root should be, and this is in Firefox, the different browsers may have different roots, but in Firefox it says, it says built-in object token GoDaddy class two certificate authority. So that's the chain. If there's anything different than that, then something is intercepting your SSL connection. You know, it unfortunately it doesn't work to show the serial number and fingerprint in the page you're trying to verify because as I said, if it's been compromised, that'll be changed to their to the compromise certificate. Uh, but, you know, again, his heart is in a good place. Speaking of which, he wants, he's got a money-raising operation. If you go to, again, HTTPS colon slash slash rally.org, R-A-L-L-Y dot org, that takes you to the homepage of a money-raising site. And his page is rally.org slash lavabit. Um, he's his goal was ninety six thousand dollars, and he's just about there. He's at ninety three thousand eight hundred seventy six when I looked this morning. So that is a uh, Ladar hoping to raise money for his legal defense fund 
in order to deal with you know the fact that he's basically fighting the government over what they're doing. And he has said that he hopes maybe if things work out, he could bring Lava Bit back um, in a way that he's comfortable with in the United States. He's not willing to move it offshore. That's you know he he lives in Texas and he wants to stay in Texas. So there is that site rally.org slash lava bit uh, if you want to uh, learn more about it. He's got an, a, a neat little video where he spends most of his time scratching his dog. Yeah, but I see also, the dog. <laughs> also, He's also, a nice man. He has a dog. He's a dog lover. He is. He yes. scratches the dog, jumps up on his lap in yeah. the middle of the video. Well, how could he be a bad man if he has a dog who loves him? It's very clear. His yes. heart is in the right place. Yes, yes. No doubt about it. So, and of course, in the news... Another day, another data collection program revealed of the uh, NSA. This was in the news this week. Uh, Boing Boing covered a a report that the Washington Post had. You may want to bring the Washington Post slides up, Leo. Uh, That's that second link in my show notes. Um, Where it is revealed uh, in some additional documents that the NSA has been collecting half a million Okay, 500,000 buddy lists and inboxes per day. You can have my buddy list. Really? Buddy lists? Buddy lists. (laughs) Yes. Terrorists have other terrorists on their buddy list? From instant messaging clients. Well, they want to build the whole deal is networking. That's what this metadata, email metadata gave them is that even if they didn't have the content, they had they were able to build networks of interconnectivity. And it's clear that that has a tremendous value to intelligence gathering. So the Washington Post said rather than targeting individual users, the NSA is gathering contact lists in large numbers that amount to a sizable fraction of the world's email and instant messaging accounts. Analysis of that data enables the agency to search for hidden connections and map relationships within a much smaller universe of foreign intelligence targets. During a single day last year, this is from the documents and the slides that the that, that Washington Post showed, the NSA's Special Source Operations Branch, okay, one day collected 444,743 email address books from Yahoo, 105,068 from Hotmail, 82,857 from Facebook, 33,697 from Gmail and 22,881 from other unspecified providers. Now, I'm I'm looking at this. Is this done by malware or with cooperation of these providers? This is is the the tap that I talked about in my first surmise. Yes, they are. They're passive taps provided by Internet service providers that allow the NSA to monitor all this traffic. Not Yahoo, not Google, but in fact, they're internet service providers. They're upstream providers. Like AT&T, that's a major, yeah, tier one provider. Um, So this says, according to an internal NSA PowerPoint presentation, those figures described as a typical daily intake in the document correspond to a rate of more than 
250 million per year. Okay, so they can multiply. So you know, half a million a day. Each day, the presentation said, the NSA collects contacts from an estimated 500,000 buddy lists on live chat services, as well as from the inbox displays of web-based email accounts. So that's interesting. The web-based email account, the web, when the web page shows you your inbox, they're getting all of that. Basically, all of your inbox contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. So, the, you know, I think that this this is this uh, points to the fact that the metadata is really, in many cases, more valuable than the content is who you talk to, who they're talking to, building a web of communications. Right. Uh, and then you have a person of interest. You can see who they talk to and who they who their friends talk to. And right. You know, the way to think about this is they where if you consider our podcast a group of smart people we're a bunch of techies that understand this stuff we know how the internet works how these technology works we know what can be done so consider then the NSA is a well funded financed organization of people every bit as smart as the people who invented and designed the internet and they're doing everything they can. That is, what are they doing? Everything possible. <laughs> everything they can. Everything they can. <laughs> if if any of us smart people could think of something that could be done, they the NSA has some wacky names for it, and it's on some slides, which we'll be we either have seen or will be seeing. Uh, and in fact, we have an, an an interesting article from Bruce Schneier, who's. So got some eye-opening names of NSA programs. First, I wanted to mention that there was a, a somewhat sad commentary about whether the Do Not Track initiative might be dying. Um, uh, this was also in the Washington Post. The headline was, The Internet's Best Hope for a Do Not Track Standard is Falling Apart. Here's why, it goes on to explain. And basically... It's it's what we would expect. Um, I'm not hugely disheartened because all I wanted was the technology to be there. Just get the header into our browsers. And everyone thought, well, okay, but Gibson, that doesn't mean anything if people don't support it. And it's like, I know, I understand that. But, you know, the lead, lead, the move, the wheels of justice turn slowly. Legislative things happen slowly. Once we have that in our browsers, then there's a chance for laws. Until we have that in our browsers, there's no chance. So my feeling is this is, you know, this has all been worthwhile. It certainly didn't cost us anything. It wasn't any effort on our part. There was a lot of effort that went into the to people really trying to make this happen. I mean, trying to make it happen. Um in, in the subhead on the Washington Post, they say, should businesses be forced to stop tra- tracking your movements on the Internet? And I'll share just a few paragraphs of this because it wound up with the EFF making their position known. It, uh, the Washington Post writes, it sounds like a simple question, but judging by the growing despair among members of a diverse group assigned by a standards body to resolve just this issue... The answer is hardly clear. The task force itself is deeply divided. 
In a member survey completed Wednesday, that's last Wednesday, half of respondents, albeit a minority of the entire working group, said the negotiations weren't working and should be abandoned. Quote, this proceeding is so flawed, it's a farce, (laughs) wrote Jeffrey Chester, um, executive director of a privacy group involved in the talks. In in, In a comment, quote, global online users deserve better. So he's just disgusted. The working group is affiliated with the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, the official custodian of web standards. It was initially brought together to develop a negotiated approach to online behavioral tracking. The collection of ad companies, privacy advocates, and outside experts. I mean, you couldn't ask for, you know, oil and water (laughs) to be mixed together. We're supposed to settle a long-standing debate about consumer privacy and help determine the future of advertising technology. But what began as cautious engagement among these admittedly diverse groups has devolved into open revolt against the process. And so so here's the EFF saying, quote, we appreciate the efforts of the W3C and all the chairs to date, wrote Li Tian, a top lawyer with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But EFF has lost confidence, he writes, that the process will produce a standard that we would support. We therefore prefer that the group simply end. Hmm. If the group continues, we, w- we, the EFF, would seriously consider dropping out. Wow. The, uh, yes, the impending collapse of the do not track conversation is part of a broader failure to agree on what obligations advertising companies have with regard to online tracking and what the word tracking even means. Hmm. So anyway, I, I mean, no one expected this to be easy. No, I mean, and in fact, no one expected it probably to even be possible. But this was the sort of thing you all, you want to try it and and hope that maybe something could be resolved and it doesn't look that's like, like that's the case. No, no, no. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, th- there's some interesting stuff here. Bruce Schneier, our our famous cryptographer, and who, who's become you know very involved in this, and almost I, don't know, I wouldn't quite say an activist, but certainly a spokesperson for the internet freedom and privacy side who understands the technology uh, wrote an interesting piece in the Atlantic, uh, which I want to share because it's some additional news with lots of specifics about um, uh, which I would reduce to saying that what the NSA is doing, it turns out is not even passive or is not only passive. Everything we've been talking about so far has been passive eavesdropping on the part of the NSA. There's a program called Fox Acid, which is, again, their name, which is anything but. And so this is Bruce, remember, not some random alarmist. Um, and he, the, the, he couched this description in 
in wanting to help help us understand how the NSA thinks about security and risk. Um, and and he said at this point the agency has to assume that all of its operations will become public, probably sooner than it would like. And he said, and so this was this this what I'm going to share was written in the Atlantic, but it was also posted in the Guardian. He says, as I report in the Guardian today, the NSA has secret servers on the internet that hack into other computers, codenamed Fox Acid. These servers. I love, provide- by the way, all of these names like Ferret Cannon and Fox Acid. <laughs> Somebody's got I some know. sense of humor anyway. Oh, goodness. Fox Acid. These servers provide an excellent demonstration of how the NSA approaches risk management and exposes flaws in how the agency thinks about the security of its own programs. Here are the Fox Acid basics. By the time the NSA tricks a target into visiting one of those servers, it already knows exactly who the target is, who wants who wants him eavesdropped on, and the expected value of the data it hopes to receive. Based on that information, the server can automatically decide what exploit to serve the target, taking into account the risks associated with the attacking, sorry, sorry, associated with attacking the target, as well as the benefits of a successful attack. So it's a complete cost-benefit analysis of actively exploiting a target. According to a top-secret operational procedures manual provided by Edward Snowden, an exploit named Validator might be the default. But the NSA has a variety of options. The documentation mentions United Rake, Pedal Cheap, Packet Wrench, and Beachhead, all delivered from a Fox Acid subsystem called Ferret Cannon. (laughs) Lord. Oh, how I love some of these code names, writes Bruce. On the other hand, Egotistical Giraffe has to be the dumbest code name ever. Stoughton explained this to Guardian reporter Glenn Greenwald in Hong Kong. If the target is a high-value one, Fox Acid might run a rare zero-day exploit that it developed or purchased. If the target is technically sophisticated, Fox, Fox Acid might decide that there's too much chance for discovery and keeping the zero-day exploit a secret is more important. If the target is a low-value one, Fox Acid might run an exploit that's less valuable. If the target is a low-value and technically sophisticated target, Fox Acid might even run an already known vulnerability. We know that the NSA receives advance warning from Microsoft of vulnerabilities that will soon be patched. There's not much of a loss if an exploit based on that vulnerability is discovered, meaning that the window of opportunity will be pretty short. Fox Acid has tiers of exploits it can run, tiers, and uses a complicated trade-off system to determine which one to run against a particular target. This cost-benefit analysis doesn't end at successful exploitation. 
According to Snowden, the Tau, that's Tailored Access Operations operators, so the Tau operators running the Fox Acid system have a detailed flowchart with tons of rules about when to stop. If something doesn't work, stop. If they detect a PSP, a personal security product, stop. If anything goes weird, stop. This is how the NSA avoids detection and also how it takes mid-level computer operators and turns them into what they call cyber warriors. It's interesting because um, that same exact behavior sounds very familiar. Remember, was it Flame? What was the name of the... uh, Virus nobody ever claimed, but we always suspected it was written by a governmental agency. Did exactly the same thing. It was very cautious. Yes, if it it's detected sort of, this, stop. If it detected that, so yeah, it, boy, that's interesting. You have to wonder. Well, anyway, and he says it's not that they're skilled hackers; it's that the procedures. Sucks net. Sucks net? All right. It, it's that the procedures do the work for them. So they they literally follow a flowchart right. and just just step by step doing what they need it's to. For script kiddies is and they're super cautious about what they do. While the NSA excels at performing this cost benefit analysis at the tactical level, it's far less competent at doing the same thing at the policy level. Mm. The organization seems to be good enough at assessing the risk of discovery, for example. If the target of an intelligence gathering effort discovers that effort, but to have completely ignored, and this is Bruce's whole point of this article, have completely ignored the risks of those efforts becoming front page news. It's not just in the U.S. where newspapers are heavy with reports of the NSA spying on every Verizon customer spying on domestic email users and security working to cripples and and secretly working to cripple commercial cryptography systems, but also around the world, most notably in Brazil, Belgium, and the EU, the European Union. All of these operations have caused significant blowback for the NSA, for the U.S., and for the Internet as a whole. The NSA spent decades operating in almost complete secrecy, But those days are over. As the corporate world learned years ago, secrets are hard to keep in the information age, and openness is a safer strategy. The tendency to classify everything means that the NSA won't be able to sort out what really needs to remain secret from everything else. The younger generation is more used to radical transparency than secrecy, and is less invested in the national security state. And whistleblowing is the civil disobedience of our time. Finally, he says, at this point, the NSA has to assume that all of its operations will become public, probably sooner than it would like. It has to start taking that into account when weighing the costs and benefits of those operations. And it now has to be just as cautious about when eavesdropping operations, uh, cautious about new eavesdropping operations, as it is about Fox Acid exploits, attacks against users. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, nice, uh, nice summary. Mentioning uh, The Guardian and uh, Glenn Greenwald, you saw that he's leaving The Guardian. Yes. But I thought very interesting where he's going. I don't know if you've seen that detail. Um, what I, I didn't see where, but he did say, if because I think I saw the news before he announced it, and I haven't followed up, he did say any other journalist given this opportunity would take it. So, so, tur- so it turns out it's Pierre Omidar, the guy who uh, founded uh, eBay and is mm. pretty much one of the wealthiest men in the world. He, uh, according to Jay Rosen, Jay Rosen, uh, uh, journalist professor, uh, uh, writes about this on his blog. He uh, tried to buy the Washington Post, was outbid by Jeff Bezos, and then started thinking, well, what if I took that same amount of money or more, quarter of a billion dollars, and put it towards building a new investigative journalistic enterprise? Wow. And uh, so apparently that's who Glenn Greenwald is going to be teaming up with. He's looking for other uh, well-known uh, names. It's going to be an interesting uh, thing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, we'll be talking here. We have a piece about a, a, a recently uh, gone open source system uh, called Secure Drop that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. But first, I want to mention something that I think is really just good news. Uh, We've talked about Matthew Green, who's the cryptographer at Johns Hopkins. Uh, We've been talking about him a lot because he's been uh, involved in in blogging recently. Um, He's one of the people behind the TrueCrypt audit, which is a tremendous effort. Uh, He's created IsTrueCryptAuditedYet.com. and it, uh, the, the top of the is TrueCryptAuditedYet.com page says, TrueCrypt is an open source file and disk encryption software package used by people all over the world. But a complete cryptanalysis has not, has not, never, been performed on the software. And questions remain about differences between Windows, Linux, and Mac OS X versions. In addition... There has been no legal review of the current TrueCrypt version 3.0 open source license, preventing inclusion in most of the free operating systems, including Ubuntu, Debian, Red Hat, CentOS, and Fedora. We want to be able to trust it, but a fully audited, independently verified repository and software distribution would make us feel better about trusting our security to this software. We're pledging this money to sponsor a comprehensive public audit of TrueCrypt. So right now, they have their goal is to raise $25,000. K, $25, uh, they have 16 of that 25, although a $10,000 lump came from an Atlanta-based security firm. Um, Matthew Green wrote in his own blog... We're now in a place where we have nearly but not quite enough to get a serious audit done. That that depends on how many factors, how many favors we can get from the security evaluation companies. I'm trying to answer that this week. Um, And then in his blog, he also wrote, in case you haven't noticed, there's a shortage of high quality and usable encryption software out there. TrueCrypt is an enormous deviation from this trend. It's nice, it's pretty, it's remarkably usable. My non-technical lawyer friends have been known to use it from time to time, and that's 
the best usable security compliment you can give a piece of software. He said, but the answer, but he said, but the better answer is because TrueCrypt is important. Lots of people use it to store very sensitive information. That includes corporate secrets and private personal information. Bruce Schneier is even using it to store information on his personal air-gapped super laptop after he reviews leaked NSA documents. We should be sweating bullets about the security of a piece of software like this. So, I mean, and, and this is this has come up often. There's like, there's weird, you know, conspiracy theories about like the past, the past domain registrations of the true crypt domain. And I see stuff like this from time to time and it's like, well, okay. But this is just good news. Everyone on the podcast knows that I'm a huge fan of true crypt. I, I really think, you know, that, that Matt is right. This, it beautifully combines ease of use um, and, and really good security, but it needs an audit. And I mean, this is always what you and I talk about, Leo. It's a one thing for it to be open source, but if no one independent goes through and reads the source, I mean, who really understands cryptography, then it is possible that it could have some little widgets snuck in. In fact, we've got a story about that coming up about a D-Link router hack. Um, but you know, so TrueCrypt needs this. It needs an audit, and then that audited code needs to be locked down. And any change made to it similarly looked at very carefully so that we can then say, okay, we have absolute, I mean, we, 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 we trust it because we believe in the intentions of everyone who was involved, but we don't, we can't really assert to, you know, absolute certainty, the intentions of everyone involved. We just assume good, well-meaning people built this for us. So, yeah, I mean, I've always kind of presumed because something is open source that uh, somebody, at least informally, is looking at it. But I guess it's the case that there's a lot of code there and it's possible there's something snuck in. It'd be hard to do. Pretty hard. Yeah, I don't think anyone has probably looked at it, Leo. Well, people look at it all the time. No, no, no. Well, but yeah, but I mean, okay. Who? Interested parties. (laughs) The good news is we're going to absolutely have a certificate. And you can download all the code uh, yourself right. and and put right. it on your computer and and comb through it. Uh, I would be surprised. I would be surprised if many people have not done so. Maybe we're all assuming the other guy's doing it. I don't know. I think that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. It certainly wouldn't hurt to have an so, official audit. That's for that's for sure. I, I think it's great. I absolutely think yeah. it's it's. I mean, the, the the problem is we want to relieve people of their concern. We we, 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 we we want to be able to say it has been audited by security aware people end of story right and and, and I mean and that and that's and that it makes sense to do that for a a super popular heavily used piece of software I mean truecrypt's what I use right I, I, I you know no, no computer of mine has ever been hacked or attacked but it, it just makes sense to have that on as I, I wouldn't operate a laptop without it because laptops are mobile by nature and and you know stuff happens there is a really interesting project secure drop which has just been moved over to github uh, if you go to github 
you can it, it's a freedom of press is the is the account and secure drop is the subdirectory under that um it is an open source whistleblower submission system which has been managed by freedom of press foundation um and the, the idea is that media organizations can use it to securely accept documents from anonymous sources. Uh, the code was originally written by Aaron Schwartz. We've talked about this a couple times. Um, it is a, it's a complex system, but in order to do this, unfortunately, it's going to have to be complex. So there are five machines sort of five machine roles um, in the system. And all of them, um, well, okay, four, four dedicated machines, all of which would be located in the offices of an organization that wanted to securely accept documents. So, for example, in this new organization where Glenn Greenwald is going to be, this is what they would use. They would set up these, and it's all... Uh, open source using uh, versions of Linux. There, there, there's a. They've got a a USB bootable system called Tails Tails OS, and so um, there is a one of these computers is the so-called viewing station machine, which should be an air gapped laptop, meaning no wire networking connected to it, an air-gapped laptop running the Tails OS from a USB stick. Um, and, and, and in the description, it says that journalists use to decrypt and view submitted documents. And it says if this laptop does not have a DVD drive, buy an external DVD drive um, you can use with it. So that's one machine, is an air-gapped laptop. Then... There will be what they call the source server is an Ubuntu server running a Tor hidden service that sources use to send messages and documents to journalists. Then there's a document server machine, another Ubuntu server running a Tor hidden service that journalists use to download encrypted documents and respond to sources. And then there's a third Ubuntu server, which is a so-called monitor, which monitors the source and document servers and sends email alerts. So it heavily uses Tor hidden services. Um, and the idea being that, that, that independent sources can, can access these machines through Tor which gives them anonymity, and there, 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 there's, a, there's a broadcasting me mechanism where credentials are made available and usernames are kept anonymous that allows anonymous people to securely encrypt and, and upload through Tor that end up arriving at these systems where then the encrypted document is lifted from the document server and and hand carried over to uh, probably burned to DVD. I haven't gone into the protocol, but that's probably why the, this this viewing station it boots from USB. But you probably burn the document to DVD, take it over to the air gap laptop, which is able then to to decrypt 
with the the recipient's credentials in order to make the documents available. So, you know, yes, it's a lot of moving parts, but but it's been very carefully designed to in order to achieve the the goal that everybody's identity is protected, the information is completely safe, yet you are able to have a conversation ultimately between a a, a, a source and a set of journalists. So, you know, Interesting. very cool yeah. technology. Yeah. yeah. And last bit of weekly of news for the week. Uh, like I said, we had a lot. Um, I tweeted this so people could get it from the tweet. I also created an all lowercase bit.ly link. So it's bit.ly slash. And then just um, this episode, we're episode 246. So it's sn-246. So it's a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash sn-246. It is a wonderful walkthrough of, of, an, an, of a guy who hacked the firmware of, the, of the firmware belonging to a family of D-Link, standard D-Link consumer routers and found a backdoor. He wasn't looking for it. He just, you know, he fired up some music that he describes at the top of his posting. Rush, I think it is. I never heard of them, but that's, you know, <laughs> Sarah probably has. You, you've never heard of Rush? Come on. Okay. No. Fine know. Canadian oh. rock band headed oh. by Getty Lee. Good. Yes. So he had good music yeah. to help him with his hacking. <laughs> and... um what what he goes through he just he, he he like looks through a list of all the subroutines and he sees the the authenticate subroutine and so he says oh that's interesting let's go see what the uh, well i'm just curious what does the authenticate algorithm look like and he's looking at arm assembly language using a a a disassembly and reverse engineering tool to to see what the branch conditions are and string comparisons. And he sees an an interesting string comparison that for some reason in the authenticate routine, he he follows some pointers and it's seems to be comparing the contents of the user agent. And he thinks that's odd. You know, you would be you'd want to be checking the password and the username. Why would you care about the user agent, which of course is like, you know, the, the user agent is Firefox or a, Internet Explorer or Safari or whatever. So he follows it along some more and he finds this weird string which the user agent, the contents of the user agent header in a, in a query is being compared with. And it's compared with a string um, which has a weird looking text. It's R-O-O-D-K-C-A-B-L-E-O-J 28840-Y-B-T-I-D-E. Until you reverse that string. And that string in reverse reads edit by 04882 Joel Backdoor. Wow. Is that a date you think? I don't know what the 04882 is. Maybe it's something in elite speak if you turn it upside down or backwards or who knows. But it turns out this is 
a backdoor for logging in to a family, a broad family that all use this firmware of D-Link routers, and all you need to do is change your user agent to that string, and you do not need a username and password. It bypasses authentication on these D-Link routers. Wow. And it's like, whoopsie. Now, hopefully, this is not exposed to the WAN. Everybody should have certainly turned off WAN side login on any router. I mean, that's security 101. Um, unfortunately, apparently, there's that search engine, I can't remember the name of it now, which does aggregate, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a search, it's an internet search engine for publicly available servers. And apparently, there's all, I, I saw that there was an NMAP script had been written for finding these hackable routers. So it may very well be that we have, I don't know, I haven't looked um, to see whether there is WAN side administration available. I just, I hope not. Because if there is, and if it's on by default, then this is a massive breach of security for for this family of D-Link routers all using this. But mostly, I just, for, for our... For people who are curious, it's very well written. He's he's he shows screenshots of each phase of his dis- of of his discovery, um, little subroutines linked together, courtesy of this great reverse engineering software. He comments what he finds anyway. So it's bitly b i t dot l y slash s n lowercase s n dash two six four and. Two four six. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yes. And it's it's confused people because the episode number is four two six, but it is two four six. Oh my god! It's okay. Somebody somebody (laughs) in the chat room also added four two six, so both work. Uh, Sorry about that, folks. Yes, doesn't matter. You said that right. (laughs) It's driving people in the chat room crazy. They're apparently fairly anal. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, Steve. The episode number is four two six. Okay, yes. Except oh, it doesn't work. It's <laughs> moving along. Both work now. So, uh, total, we're, we're out of news. A little bit of miscellaneousness. Um, I saw a, a, a tweet from someone uh, who's, well, his name is Pudding, and his twi- Twitter handle is Ton of Pudding. So, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Well, it's more but, pudding than but, just one pudding. It's a lot it's of pudding. It's a lot of pudding, yeah. yeah. So he said, at SGGRC, he said, I bet Elaine is now a total security expert, having to listen closely to every episode to transcribe them. And what's funny, the thing that caught my eye is that Elaine just said last week, she does amazing due diligence for the transcripts. So when we were talking about uh, Taylor at diffuse.ca, Last week, and 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 you knew of diffuse.ca, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. and and remembered who Taylor was. Yeah. Well, Elaine, you know, Google Google's goes to his site wow. and looks around. She because verifies. She wants, wow. Will spell his name and and make sure she gets the URL right. You I mean, go, she really Elaine. Wow. Does it. so apparently in Taylor's resume, he says one of the items. I guess it's where it, it's or somewhere on his site because Elaine found it. It's he he says listened to every SN podcast twice. 
And Elaine, <laughs> That's good. Elaine read that and said, and then so wrote all this to me and said, you know, so have I. I come because, to think of it. <laughs> because she re, she listens to it once to yeah. transcribe yeah. and then she proofs it. it. She yeah. listens to the entire wow. thing a second wow. time, proofreading wow. her first That's past awesome. transcription. So she said, yes, Taylor and I have listened to every Security Now podcast twice. And she is now officially a security expert. So, okay, Leo, we had, we, I had not seen Gravity last week. Oh, you didn't go. We, oh, you, 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 you know what? I didn't get to see it. We, we said I would, but I haven't yet. So, Well, I have. Okay, no spoilers. And, uh, no, no spoilers, of course. It I has something just to do say, with space and falling, I think. Okay, well, then we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. it. I wouldn't really call it science fiction. I would call it science drama. Yes. And it was fun. It was fun science drama. I mean, it was... But if you if you go if you want sci-fi, Ender's Game. That's what we're waiting for. Yeah, is excited. Ender's Game. Yeah, oh, but read goodness. the book first. Yeah, I, I you know that I did reread the book just yeah. because I now the movie was coming and I wanted yeah. to. That's Orson Scott Card for those who don't yeah. know. Read the book first. And we do have the Tomorrow People. I watched it. I watched the first episode. Yeah, what'd you think last Wednesday? Eh, I mean, uh, it's a little bubblegum, uh, but. You know, beggars can't be choosers, and I'm definitely begging for sci-fi. So, you know, I'll, I'll give it a while and and hope. It looks like it could be fun. We'll we'll see, we'll see how it evolves. No, nobody has yet disproved my theorem that science fiction on TV is pretty much not so great. Well, Firefly was great. Firefly we, was. No, you're right. Okay, you're and right. I'll give and you that. Star Trek. Star Trek all began on television. I would say there is no good contemporary. There's nothing now at the moment that Firefly is. Firefly was the last. Yeah, and it, it was really... mangled on TV, so uh, it doesn't completely disprove my theorem. Good point. They did it out of order, and they canceled it without even yeah. airing all the episodes they right. had made. So like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it was it was made properly, just uh. never displayed <laughs> on TV properly. Yeah. Hey, before we uh, uh, go on, I know you want to talk about uh, Squirrel and some additional features that have uh, emerged in the Squirrel world. May I mention Pro XPN briefly, since they have elected to sponsor this fine show. And it is kind of apropos. You've talked many times about the notion of open VPN, this idea of a virtual private network. VPN's been around for a long time. It was originally, I think most of us became first became aware of it when uh, our work offered it as a way to log into the work computer remotely. Uh, the VPN did two things. It authenticated you to the work computer, so you really said you really worked there with strong, you know, strong security. But also it encrypted the traffic so that, you know, no uh, no competitor could snoop on what was going on. Those spreadsheets would remain private. Uh, but the idea is really cool because when you're using a virtual private network, no middleman along the way can see into that encrypted tunnel. Uh, it's one of the reasons you and many others have said, you know, it would be a great way to protect yourself online, uh, say at an internet cafe, an open Wi-Fi access spot, anywhere, maybe with your internet service provider if you're concerned about them, and many of us should be, anywhere where you're going online but you don't really trust the people along the way. ProXPN makes this easy. Sure, you could set up an open VPN server if you have Steve Gibson-level skills, and even Steve said it was a tough thing to do. But why not just use OpenVPN through a, a provider, a hosted OpenVPN? That's how ProXPN works. And it has some nice advantages because they... 
Now, remember, on every VPN, eventually you exit from the virtual private network into the public internet. You have to, otherwise you wouldn't, you know, be able to visit Google. Uh, but you get your choice of where to exit with ProXPN. They have servers all over the world. Dallas, Seattle, London, Singapore, Los Angeles, New York City, and Amsterdam. That means when you use, and you can choose which one you want, the London server, you appear, for all intents and purposes, to be surfing the net from London. 512-bit encrypted tunnel, 2048-bit encryption key. It does support PPTP on those uh, devices that don't. Although I have to say now, with the great Pro uh, XPN Android app, which is uh, available in the Google Play Store, now Android has open VPN. I think there's solutions also uh, on Apple uh, using uh, Pro XPN Mobile. I think you you really got a great solution here. Uh, yeah, they've got an iOS one and an Android one now, so that's fabulous. Look, you got to try Pro XPN, and we want to make this easy for you. Of course. You know, they have a free version, but I think you're going to want the pro version. Normally, uh, that would be uh, $74.95 for a year or $9.95 for a month. But we have a special offer. If you visit proxpn.com slash twit to learn more about it and you decide to sign up, use this, the offer code SN20, and we're going to give you 20% off, not just for the first month or the first year, but for the lifetime of your account, that means Pro XPN will cost less than five bucks a month on the yearly plan, and that is a great deal for this kind of security to protect yourself against geographic restrictions, against a snooping ISP with a, or six strikes, uh, to 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 surf safely at a shady internet access <laughs> points. Uh, Pro XPN is a great solution. They have software for Windows and Mac offering advanced controls. That means you can select the programs and ports you want to anonymously route through ProXPN's servers. They work with iOS and Android. I think you've got a great solution here. Visit ProXPN.com slash twit. Try it out. ProXPN, don't get confused here, for OpenVPN. ProXPN.com slash twit. And remember, the offer code SN20. If you're not satisfied, you can cancel within seven days for a full refund. ProXPN.com slash twit offer code SN20. We continue now with security now. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte. Just uh, briefly, a couple of weeks ago while I was on vacation, Steve introduced something called SQRL, Secure QR Code Login. And uh, the world is beating a path to your door, it sounds like. <laughs> well, um, it, it, I've been watching a lot of the dialogue going on. And, and the short version is, yes, this concept has captivated a lot of people. The, 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 what I like about it is that it is simple. And, and so... That the GRC news group has gone crazy. Um, I'm something like 800 posts behind, and I was current for a while, but I think we're about 2,200 postings that have been made. Um, cause just because so many people want to be involved and to to communicate. Um, as I mentioned last week, I've been contacted by the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, about considering adding this to the HTML5 spec, opening a dialogue. Uh, next week is the HTML5 Developers Conference, 
uh, the Web Developers Conference at Moscone Center. And uh, a Dan Holmland is going to be giving a presentation on SQRL, basically doing a presentation so to awesome. explain what it is and how it works. Wow. In, in, in his little snippet, uh, uh, in, as you know, his, his, uh, his synopsis of, the, uh, of, of his presentation, he said, recently the computer security community has been set on fire by a proposal for a new authentication scheme named Squirrel from Steve Gibson of GRC. Squirrel is an easy-to-use, high-security replacement for usernames, passwords, reminders, one-time code authenticators. It provides authentication that can be anonymous, and it requires no trusted third party that can be compromised by hackers or three-letter government organizations. We will walk through how Squirrel works and how it can be implemented on your web or mobile application. So... I mean, it, and if you look, there's an implementations page in the Squirrel pages at GRC. Uh, as you mentioned last week, grc.com slash SQRL. Actually, when you mentioned it, that that link wasn't working because it's actually SQRL slash SQRL. But I thought, ooh, I better fix that. So I did. <laughs> oh, good. So that works now. <laughs> Too many squirrels. Um, <laughs> that can always screw but, things I mean, up. People are, like, writing code like crazy. So... So I've sort of been trying to ride herd of this, uh, like, too much interest almost. And and the thing I've run across is, and, and this is not a complaint. This is, I consider this good. It's just a, a lot, is everyone wants it to do everything. And it does not do everything. And what I believe we have with it is there are many benefits. One of them is its simplicity, the fact that it isn't the kitchen sink, that it doesn't involve a third party. There's plenty of identification schemes trying to, I mean, that even exist that are third party schemes. But I think third party schemes, all of them are dead now in this post NSA, you know, post Snowden era. So, so, you know, my best example of a system that works, but it's not perfect. And I've used this. That's one of my favorite analogies is cars, driving cars. Mm. Imagine that cars didn't exist, that, that there hadn't been an evolution, but that they just, they were like, people were saying, okay, we need to stop walking everywhere. What are we going to do? And someone says, I know, <laughs> let's create a 2,000 pound gas powered high speed missile with the steering wheel and we're going to just let people go wherever they want to. Well, I mean, people would say, you're crazy. That's insane. <laughs> people are going to crash into each other. Oh. Oh, the horror. Uh, well, I guess that could happen, but most people are not suicidal and we'll help them. We'll give them traffic lights and everyone will agree if the light is red, it would be good to stop your missile before <laughs> crossing, you know, oncoming traffic. That, you know, that everybody will be happier if we agree to some rules. Yes. And so, so you know, and my point is I don't think it could have ever happened. No. If, I mean, it just would have never happened if right. we didn't already have it. It's because we slowly evolved from horses. In fact, one of my very favorite 
Henry Ford lines is it, it it echoes a Steve Jobs line. You know, Steve Jobs said, "I love this. It's not the customer's job to know what they want." That's just brilliant. I love that. You know, right. he he didn't do focus groups. He just said, "Here it is. <laughs> Suck it up." Uh, and of course, we all sucked up all of Apple's goodies. Right. Henry Ford said, uh, I asked people what they wanted, and they said they wanted a faster horse. Mm-hmm. I th- so, I hate to say it because I love that quote, and I've quoted it, and I've been told that that's that he never really, really said it. Henry but it's, Ford? Yeah, it's a uh, great line. Great I love anyway, the line. So, yeah. so my point is that what I've been trying to do is keep the system simple. Um, for example revocation. The idea is, you know, people, I say, okay, you just have one master key and we're going to help you protect it. I mean, we're really going to go out of our way to help you to, 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 to support the idea of one master key. The beauty is that the key is, it is never used. Nothing, there's no vulnerability to using it. Websites don't get it. They get a, a a derivative of it based on their domain name, which allows you to identify yourself to them. And even if they leaked that 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 derivative, your your you know your identity for them, it's different on every other site. So people just they love all of that. It's like oh okay great, but then they say, but what if I lose it? Okay, well, right. What if you run through the red light? Um, so my so my point is that we will do everything we can to protect you from yourself to to help the uh, to help this this simple system actually work. So so there are two aspects to it to keep bad guys from getting it. We use extremely strong encryption. And it's it's there, but there's not really even a term. I say deeply encrypted when I talk about well, it takes a minute to do the encryption, which allows you to then export your key in a QR code, like to print it out to stick it in a drawer, so that you're prevented from losing it. And it it also takes a second or two when you enter your password to remind the phone that you know to prove that you're you're the one using it. Um, so we, we, we really create a barriers to you losing it, that is getting out of your control, or bad guys getting it. Because we, we want to make it as practical as possible just to have one key. If, if we can, then the benefits are huge because you can literally use this to identify yourself uniquely across the entire internet in a way where you don't have to have any per website stuff. It's just this one thing. But people said, okay, what if I have a bad breakup with my with a partner and he or she has my key in their phone? And you know, it's you can have your key in someone else's phone protected by your password, and it's safe because we've made it so difficult to do password guessing. Or what if, you know, the the, the your your phone is confiscated at the border and they keep it for a week before giving it back to you? You know, so the point is there are arguably some scenarios where 
you could forever after something happens feel uncomfortable that your key is may have gotten out of your control somebody has it on their phone or they decrypted your phone you know the 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 government decrypted your phone and bef- and then sucked its data out and gave it back to you and now they can be you know working on it in the background where you know again all the pro- all the protections we have prevent it from immediate prevent your key from having any rapid reverse engineering no way for anyone to get it without you know i mean it's 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 completely infeasible to do brute force attacks but still what if and so so we've we've come up with a small improvement simple improvement to the protocol which solves this problem and that is the, the inevitable problem or, or the, the possibility. We don't want it to be like something everyone does. But it's like, okay, what, what if you wanted to retire a key for any reason? All we've, all we've changed is you can take your, whatever your current key is and assign it as your previous key sort of just change it to your previous key and invent a new one. So now your SQRL client has this has the notion of a previous key. Just one. Again, you don't need 10 because this is the kind of thing that should never happen. But if it does, then we want to provide a means for replacing a key that you regret may have gotten out of your control somehow. And even though it doesn't mean you're hackable, it's just it. we ought to have a way to do that. Now, I've always felt that websites, a website that you're using, would give you means to manage your account. They probably still have an email address for you. You know, you, you I mean, that's still something you uniquely control. And so you probably could go to a, a, a squirrel supporting site and say, hi there, it's me. Uh, I want to change my email address the way we do now. And they might say, okay, well, we don't have a password on file for you because you're using squirrel, but we did ask you for some security questions so you can prove who you are through another means. I mean, you know, there are these sorts of things still function. Well, certainly... There ought to be a means there to say, I would like to replace my key. I, I mean, I have always imagined that you, you'd be able to do that. The problem is it's still sort of awkward. It's like, well, you got to log in with your old key. And then what do you have? Like, how, how do you, you have to switch users that your, your, your user account in Squirrel in order to say, okay, here's, now I'm going to scan my new key. So you get that. Anyway, that's just sort of awkward. So we've made it simple to do this. Anytime your your Squirrel authenticating device, your smartphone or a Squirrel app on a laptop or computer, however you're doing it, anytime it you have defined a previous key, your old key, then the authentication query, which is what identifies you, simply provides both. It provides your new key and your old key and signatures of and 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 two signatures of that 
So the two signatures is the old SIG and the current SIG, essentially. So what, what that does is anytime you log in to a website, it will... And the and the website sees you have an old key defined. You're giving you're giving it an old key. It will first check to see whether it has a record of you under the old key. If so, it replaces that immediately with the new key, and forgets the old key, and it knows that you were the owner once of the old key because it you have this you have correctly signed the old key the, the, the actually the old keys the old keys private key was used to sign the, this whole query as was the the new keys private key so basically you've double signed this to say I know both of the private keys that are associated with this old identity and the new identity, and the site simply replaces the old one with the new one. So logistically, that makes this this arguably important sometimes or possibly need to relatively easy replace easily replace your keys manageable. You simply you simply retire the key you were using come up with a new one, and then you just go, you just visit the various important sites that you use, most your bank and Amazon and Google and, you know, those major ones, and your identity is flushed, your prior identity is flushed from them. There will certainly be some, like, random blogs and things that that you don't get to immediately. They'll still have your old identity until you next go there and then your identity will automatically be replaced on the fly for you. So that's a, a, a simple change, an enhancement we made to the protocol that solves the problem of, you know, if I lose control of my, of my galactic master identity key and I really, really, really have to change it, how do I do that? And it's not like we change every key in the world. There have been proposals in, in, in the GRC's news group, you know, of like keeping a record of every site you log into. Well, okay, then, then we have a, a, a very stateful client. Then how do you move that between devices? What if you log in somewhere else on a device that isn't synced to the cloud? I mean, suddenly the whole system becomes a huge problem if you try to perfectly solve the revocation problem. I argue, j- just as with driving cars, if we provide people with the tools that they need so that they will not hurt themselves, then this operates in a sweet spot where it is it is very simple, easy to implement, and provides tremendous value, and we help people to, to be responsible. And then the, the second thing which has happened in the last week, which is very cool, is we actually have come up with extremely good anti-phishing protection. Phishing is a topic we've discussed on the podcast through the years. It's a it's a it's an ongoing problem for the internet. You you know you typically you get a link in email, and it's because of this problem that the wisdom is never click a link in email. 
It's because you can't see what the, where the link is taking you. And it may look, it looks like, you know, a PayPal invoice. Uh, I've seen some spam like that. It's like, hey, we just wanted to let you know we just cleared the $374 purchase you made. Yay. Uh, in PayPal, you know, click here if you want to check your account. And so that that's, of course, a scare tactic. Someone says, wait a minute, I didn't authorize a 300, whatever it was, dollar purchase. So they they click the link and it takes them to a page that sure enough looks just like PayPal, but it's not. It's, it's a variation on PayPal's name, something where they're just not going to notice that it's CN instead of COM, for example. Um, so, so people have said, Hey, Steve, you know, is there anything that squirrel can do to solve this, this fishing problem? Um, it turns out there is because first of all, a site that wants to spoof SQRL login has to take, has to go to a much greater effort to do so. The, in the PayPal example, all they just it's it's a passive spoof. They show you a PayPal page and says that means look just like PayPal and says, you know, give us your username and password, and you type that in to this fake PayPal page and hit submit. Instantly, they have your credentials. They've got your username and password for PayPal, and now you're in trouble. In order to in order to successfully spoof login with Squirrel, the spoofed site would have to get a valid SQRL code from PayPal. Now, that can be done. It's a, it basically, it's, it becomes a man-in-the-middle attack where, so, so that ups the ante. Just using Squirrel ups the ante of a phishing, but still makes it possible. So that site, when when you display the page behind the scenes, the the evil site goes and gets a essentially it starts a log on on PayPal, gets the squirrel code that PayPal thinks it's showing you, and and then the the bad site displays it on its page. Now you scan that. And what you're doing is, because it's a, an, a true PayPal link that just came from the, from the PayPal logon page, you are truly, you're authenticating yourself to PayPal, but you're authenticating the session which the evil site started. That is, it, it opened the, the login page and, just, and then showed you the, the, the SQRL code which you would be authenticating. The problem is the IP addresses don't match. Think about it. The web server and it, you know, .cn or .ru or wherever it is, the web server asked PayPal, the PayPal server, from its IP for the SQRL code. When you authenticate, you're coming from a, from either your web browser's IP or from your phone. They will be different. And so, so there, is a, there is a large class of, of phishing which we're able to block. Um, 
anytime, re- remember that, that we talked last week about being able to either optically scan the QR code to use the whole multi-factor, I'm using my phone as my, my identity approach. But many people, uh, even Tom, when, we, when I first mentioned this two weeks ago, with, with, with Tom, he said, well, what about if, I just, if I've got my laptop with me and I want to log on with my laptop? And of course, since then, we have fully fleshed out that. You could have an SQRL client installed on your computer, whether a laptop, a desktop, a tablet, or your phone. And if you're logging in on that device, then you just tap or click on the on the SQRL code. And the because it has an SQRL colon slash slash, it understands that that's the so-called scheme of, of the URL and and does the authentication for you. In that case, in any instance where you're logging in on the same device that you're browsing, the IP address will be the same. Your browser will have asked for the login page, and that will be the same IP as the SQRL client asks for, you know, uh, performs its authentication query. So what we've added to the spec is something very simple. The client knows if the IP address is expected to be the same. It's probably not the same if you're using an optical scan and a cellular carrier for bandwidth because then the IP is going to be different than the machine you're scanning. But if you were at home and your and your cell phone was on your home Wi-Fi network then your public IP of your browser and your phone are still going to be the same. So even there, even using your phone with the same Wi-Fi on the same network as your computer, the, the IP that the public sees is the same. What's cool is that the client knows if the IP is expected to be the same. If it's, on, if it's, if it's a client on a laptop or desktop or tablet or phone, not being optically scanned and not cellular carrier, it adds an option to the query Said that the option is enforce. And what this does is it tells the web server where you're authenticating to enforce a same IP policy. And, and the option cannot be removed by any man in the middle because the signature which we use to sign the the URL encompasses all of the options and other features. So we're signing the whole package. So the signature after the signature gets verified, the web server sees that we've asked for enforcement. We the, we, the client who's doing the authentication is asking for enforcement of the same IP policy. And if the IP that it gave the squirrel code to is different from the IP that is asking to authenticate that squirrel code, it fails. It sends an error message back saying IP mismatch, authentication failure. And so what that does is it it gives, it essentially imbues this system, not in every possible case, not in the the optical scan cellular carrier, because there you'd expect your IP of your computer and your phone to be different. But in in the huge 
instance of anyone working at home, at office, where they're using their, their same squirrel um, identity to log into websites during the day, or if you're on a tablet, or if you're logging in on your phone. In all of those instances, the IP should be the same. This completely detects and blocks phishing, which nothing else has ever been able to do before. Seems that, though, in a lot of cases, this is an option that's going to be left off. Is it, is it going to be off by default? Probably, right? On by default, On actually. by default. Yeah, it, it, it'll, be, it'll be off for the optical scan mode, but it'll be on for the, the authenticating non-scanning when you're clicking or, or tapping because the IP ought to always be the same. You'll, you'll be able to override it. So you, you, you'll, you'll, you, essentially, it'll come, your, your authenticating device, whether your phone or the squirrel client, will come back and say, you know, explain in understandable English for our moms that, you know, well, actually, I don't know how we're going to explain it to our moms, but, but you'll be able to push past that if you want to. It'll explain that there may be a problem with the website, that, th- that there is a, you know, a, an authentication problem, you know, refresh the page, make sure the URL is spelled correctly, whatever we end up, you know, how we choose to end up wording this. But uh, it, is, it is always the case that the IP should be the same and only in the, in the event of a third party obtaining the squirrel code on your behalf and trying to trick you with the IP mismatch. So, I, I, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll put this out, we'll experiment with, with how it works and, and see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, if it becomes an issue, you can obviously, nothing's written in stone. Yeah, you'll be able to turn off the check marks. Right, right. Very interesting. Once again, no. more strides going forward. Look, uh, so tomorrow is the HTML5 presentation? Is that tomorrow? No, it's next week. Next week. It's next week. Very interesting, yeah. yeah. At html5devconf.com. That's awesome. Is, is, the, uh, is the location. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not going to turn this, obviously, into the Squirrel podcast. I hope this, I'm going to try to, we'll, we'll do a Q&A next week and take a lot of questions, and I will uh, certainly not have SQRL dominate the podcast, but uh, uh, that's what I'm working on until we get it done. Cool. If you want to participate, of course, there's a group, a uh, working group going on right now at Steve's site, grc.com, in the forum there. You can also submit questions for next week on a vari- on any topic, <laughs> uh, squirrel or otherwise, at grc.com slash feedback. GRC is where Spinrite lives. lives. You didn't mention Spinrite this week. I don't know why, Steve, but I'm going to mention it. The world's best hard Thank drive you. recovery and maintenance utility. If you have hard drives, you must have spin right and you can get it right now at grc.com along with a bunch of other free, freebies yeah that pays the bills and a free upgrade to the next version is yeah. guaranteed yeah that's awesome too he's working on that too grc.com is where you'll find 16 kilobit audio of this show for the bandwidth impaired those full transcriptions we mentioned by elaine ferris very nicely done we have full bandwidth audio and video of the show at our site twit.tv slash sn for security now uh, collect all 462 or whatever, 26. I mean, you might as well get them all. <laughs> just have them all. They're all there and uh, have a complete set. Just like I see you have the Oxford English Dictionary. I, you know, I never noticed that over your right shoulder. Or, yeah, your right oh, shoulder. Oh, yeah. yeah. Love it. Wow. Yeah. And and somebody's mentioned that your blinking lights are not moving as fast. Did you slow down the refresh rate on your PDP-8? Uh, we got smart. We got, they pay we got attention. Sharp, sharp-eyed watchers. <laughs> they pay attention. <laughs> I changed, the, the switches allow me to change the characterization. I thought, oh, let's, let's change the way it feels. Uh, <laughs> A little less frenetic. 
Yeah. Uh, if you want to watch the show live, we do it Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 1800 UTC on twit.tv. Please tune in live and watch. Uh, the chat room, of course, is always a big part of all of our shows, and that's the only way you can be a part of the chat room is to watch. Uh, but you can also visit us in the studio. We have some nice people visiting this week. All you have to do is email tickets at twit.tv. There are really limited spaces, only about five seats here in the little studio. Big studio has kind of unlimited room. Uh, so do email us. Let us know ahead of time so we can make sure we can get you in. Tickets at twit.tv. Uh, Steve will be here uh, next week to talk more about security and answer some questions, I think. Yep, sgrc.com uh, slash feedback will get you to the Security Now feedback page, grc.com slash feedback. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.